hello around the world to rock fans, wherever you're listening in the world. Welcome along to a special edition of the Enter Sadmen podcast. Now, ordinarily, of course, what you'd be expecting us to do is to be listening to and reviewing uh, three albums loosely based on a theme and then rating them and ranking them before placing them in our hallowed hall of fame. We're not doing that this evening. Don't worry. Normal service will be resumed next week, but uh, this evening is the very first in what we hope will turn out to be a series uh, of special editions of the podcast, because what we have tasked ourselves with doing is trying occasionally to talk to some of the musicians and figures in uh, hard rock and heavy metal who were there at the time doing it, uh, making the music or involved in making the music in some way. Uh, We'd like to be doing more of these, but we've got a really special first week because we were lucky enough uh, to have an hour with um, a man who is uh, very much one of um, our favourites, Steve Richard and my favourites, a bit of an idol, uh, actually. Um, and that is Mr. Brian Tatler, uh, the founding member and lead guitarist for Diamond Head. Now, um, if you were listening to the last uh, edition of the podcast, you'll know that we rated uh, and reviewed Lightning to the Nations. And if you haven't heard that episode, I'm not going to spoil it for you by letting you by telling you here where it got to in the Hall of Fame, but go back and listen to it. Uh, it is... Even though we say so ourselves, it's a, a really good uh, episode of the pod. Yeah, suffice to say, anyone who has listened to it will know that we're all huge Diamond Head fans. So it was a real uh, honour, actually, when I just emailed the website, the Diamond Head website, on spec and said, oh, do you reckon Brian might be prepared to give up a little bit of time for us to talk to us about Diamond Head Life on the Road uh, and also his favourite 10 albums of all time? Because we thought, wouldn't it be great if we could put together um, not only our own kind of top 100, top 250, however long that turns out to be, wouldn't it be great if when we talk to the, the guys and girls who actually were making this music or making contribution to this music, wouldn't it be great to have their top tens? And we could kind of compile that as well alongside the Hall of Fame. So I was quite surprised and, and really happy when Brian emailed back and said, yeah, um, we're in lockdown. I've got nothing better to do. Happy to talk. So we spent an hour with him. He was hugely generous of his time. And um, we started off that conversation with me asking him whether the recording of Lightning to the Nations seemed like only yesterday or a lifetime ago? Yeah, it's more like a lifetime ago. My memory's a bit patchy. When I wrote the book, I, I, you know, scrambled my brain trying to remember details. And I'd go, I'm still in touch with uh, Duncan Scott, the original drummer. And uh, he he would come up with a few little anecdotes. But... um, I can't remember masses about it. I can sort of picture the studio. But, of course, I've been to a lot of studios since. And and it all becomes, you know, you only remember almost highlights uh, or lowlights, funnily enough. (laughs) You'd been around for three years. The band had been in existence since 76. Yeah. But the most astonishing thing about Diamond Head, let me tell you up front, is that there was only, I think, five years between you starting to learn the guitar and actually making this album, which is just astonishing. Is it? I, I thought that, that... Why is that astonishing? Because, because I, I, well, personally, I think if I had started to learn the guitar at 14 and then at 19 had composed arguably one of the greatest songs <laughs> there is, I, 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 well, I just... I, that just is beyond me it's beyond okay but clearly not for you you but you must have just you must have just spent your life learning the instrument um i did practice a lot once i once i decided uh, i wish my brother well i say i wish my brother my brother it tried to encourage me from about 11 to practice and to learn and i couldn't be bothered and i I, i'd ever go and i think it's too painful it's too hard, you know. Uh, so I kept giving up. And then, you know, I, I had a, a few moments where eventually I just thought, okay, I'm going to practice. I'm going to learn properly. And then, you know, when I was, as soon as I could move a bar chord up and down the neck, I was off and I, I got the band going and uh, 
writing these songs. But I, I, I would say that what we did more than and probably a lot of bands is we were concentrated on songwriting because we hadn't got any gear. Uh, so we hadn't even got a drum kit for about the first uh, 12 months. So all we could do really, we couldn't do any gigs, but we could write songs and, and I'd got a cassette recorder and it was all centered around my bedroom. And uh, I would just record these songs week in, week out and listen to them and critique them and say that bit's good and this bit's, you know. And, and Sean and I worked very well together. We both was complimented each other. He, I, would able, I was able to come up with a riff and he would, he would just start singing on top of it straight away, coming up with lyrics and ideas. And, and then I, Sean couldn't play when he joined the band, but I showed him a couple of things and then he, he was away and he would... Uh, contribute to the the music as well and the arrangements and you know a very fast learner very talented individual and so we got really good at writing songs way before we we were out doing gigs uh I, i've said this before but we didn't do any gigs in 1976 we did one gig in 1977 and we did two gigs in 1978 <laughs> wow. which is mad so, isn't it why was that then we did you you wanted to focus on the songwriting? No, we just, we hadn't got the gear. We didn't know where to play. We didn't know how to book a gig. All we could do really is keep writing uh, and sort of prepare for the moment when we would actually set foot on stage. And uh, we also had three bass players before Colin. Even though we always say that's the original lineup, you know, for, for ease. There was three bass players before Colin who all left for university. So, again, that would slow us down. We'd have to replace each bass player. We'd probably get up to a speed and then that'd be off. Uh, and then we'd be back to the drawing board. And then the only reason we got Colin is because we hadn't got a bass player. And I asked Colin, who, who is my oldest friend. I've known him since we were about maybe seven and I still see him regularly. To play the bass, I said, if you buy a bass, I'll teach you how to play. And that was it. And he went and bought a bass for 30 quid and, and made a start. And, you know, simple, cheap K bass, <laughs> second hand. Good Lord. Good Lord. Because you listen to his bass on, well... Yeah, he's great. And, and, and borrowed time, particularly. And yeah, he learned really fast. Yeah. And what he plays on the Prince, I'm never quite sure what, he, what it actually is, but it's really interesting. Uh, and, I mean, I didn't tell him to play that. He, he made all that up himself. Uh, so he, he was obviously, um, you know, a quick learner, talented. He, he took to it. So, so how, did, how, how did it come to be that you, you ended up going into the old Smithy Studios to record like that must have been a really exciting time yeah very uh we'd done shoot out the lights back with helpless in 1979 at the end of 1979 i think that came out around february 1980 then i think in around january february we went in and, and recorded lightning to the nations uh, in a week uh, i think the manager by this point we we were on our fourth lot of managers, all amateurs, you know, but uh, different people had come and gone from 76 to 1980. Uh, and this guy, Reg, went to the studio guy, uh, Muff Murphy, and said, or, oh, you know, between them, they cooked up this crap deal, crap for the band, that if Muff has half the publishing, he'll let us have a week in his studio. And so they shook hands on that deal. So there was no contract. And uh, so Mutt had the, Muff rather, had the publishing. Funny name, isn't it? Muff Murphy. <laughs> what a name. He, he had the publishing on, on those seven songs for um, 15 years. And all we got out of it was a, a week in his studio. Don't sound like a good deal to me, does it? No. Oh, no. Especially once Metallica covered, am I evil? <laughs> so presumably then, Brian, because having all those years of songwriting, you talk about obviously the seven tracks on the album, but did you go, did you go in there thinking there would be more? Did you have more? Did you have an idea of what the track 
listening. Yeah, we, we had a lot more, but we just did the seven best. We played them all live because I think we did about 10 gigs in 79. Once we got this guy, Steve Busfield, managing us, and he, he would just go and phone around all the pubs and clubs and stuff. So suddenly we had about 10 gigs. And we'd played them all live, tried them out. We used to say road tested the material. And we, we all thought those were the seven best songs to go on the album. We only needed 40 minutes, as you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the rest were left behind. You know, we, we'd already written To Heaven From Hell and Dead Reckoning. Uh, I think we had To The Devil Is Due in one shape or another. And so uh, we just, as I say, we put on the seven best uh, and that was all it was ever meant to be. And then the others got used up later on on, on EPs. Trevor from Hell went on Borrowed Time album, uh, etc. Uh, some got used, some didn't. And I, I, I've got cassettes. I used to record pretty much everything. And I've got cassettes that go back to 76 with us, you know, doing these weird songs that... Uh, nobody else has ever heard and nobody else has ever gone here <laughs> i'll keep them private <laughs> was the running order obvious brian was it was it obvious the three four split and the way the album split was that your choice or was it obvious that it, that it felt right i can't remember i, I would imagine it was a band decision or mm. it, it seemed to be mainly my band and sean was yeah. uh you know Sean had the sort of character that that he uh, he wasn't you know a wallflower. He was uh, mm-hmm. he'd speak up for himself. Mm-hmm. So it probably came down to myself and Sean deciding the order, and that was it. I don't know how much thought we put into it. It's just it's it's fascinating how it maps out. I'm 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 probably overthinking this, but bear with me. So I'm looking at a track like "Sucking My Love," which is nine and a half minutes long. It could go on twice as long. It's it's an epic. <laughs> But this is, this is 1980 we're talking, Brian, aren't we? And, and we know, you talk very warmly about punk and elements of punk and these British bands were coming along and then shortening tracks. Yeah. Prog, was, prog was dying on its feet, some would say, thankfully. Um, and yet you've committed, was, was there any thought process about a nine and a half minute track on your debut album? I mean, it's an no. absolute blinder, but you're never challenged by that at all. no. We kind of just thought it was a good track and that's all that mattered. Mm. Uh, I, there was never a conversation, I don't think, to cut it down. Uh, don't forget, we grew up listening to 70s bands like yeah. Zeppelin, yeah. Purple. You know, Purple have got Child in Time, haven't they? And, and then you've got Rush with things like Xanadu and you've got Rainbow had some big songs stargazer things like that mm-hmm. so i think we were trying to be epic we were trying to write massive tracks that would live forever mm-hmm. but at the same time yeah i like punk uh you, i mean you've also got it's electric on there which is three minutes 30 yeah, and it's just yeah. very fast throwaway kind of rock mm-hmm. song so uh, maybe we were just touching you know on on a few things but uh, definitely we wanted to write uh, big, long songs. We, we'd come up with lots of riffs mm. and we'd try and get them in, you know. I'd come up with a riff, maybe in rehearsal, we'd just say, we could put that there, you know. And we, even if we'd play four times and then go on to something else, it just felt very instinctive and easy and free-flowing. Well, so. that's, a really, that's a really interesting word because I'm thinking about, in particular, in Sucking My Love, that, that middle um, solo you play, it's almost like you're jamming, you know, yeah. the harmonics, and then you, you're just off in your own world and, and it, yeah. it, it just breathes, doesn't it? I and probably w- would have just, like, uh, you know, jammed it each time slightly differently. Mm. Uh, you, you, I always find with a solo, you keep playing it until it eventually takes its own form. And then you and then you repeat it, or if you get it down on tape, how you like it, then uh, that becomes the definitive solo. But I'd be working on it right up to the last minute. What was the recording process like? Were you playing? Were you playing live? Did you layer it? Combination of both? A little bit of both. We'd set up all together in the room, then we'd do the track. Uh, I think the first thing we did was try to play to a click, uh, but that didn't work because Duncan, the drummer, had never played to a click before. So, of course, he he said, you know, he put the headphones on, expecting to hear, like, vocals and guitar 
and, and the bass and all that because he's in this little tiny drum booth and and all he hears is doop, 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 coming down the headphones at him and he's going what's this what's this cowbell doing in my headphones <laughs> you know? um and so he hated that and and he used to say that the click tracks keeps drifting out of time with the <laughs> with what he's playing and we would say no you're the click tracks right you're moving around the click track uh, and in the end we had, we abandoned the click track we couldn't do it so nothing on that, that album is done to a click uh, so we would try and get the take down without somebody making a, a mistake probably duncan because you always think well if, if we can get the drums down we could always redo a guitar or a vocal or something and we'd probably go through each track a couple of times until it, it was either right or you know, or we were bored and we wanted to move on to the next one or something. But I think we got everything down in probably a couple of days. And then I, I would do a second guitar, uh, like a stereo guitar, and then maybe the solos. And then Sean would do redo all the lead vocals. And then I think we messed around with some bits of percussion. They've got a cupboard full of bells and whistles and you know, little xylophones and things. And we were dragging all this stuff out, thinking, where can we use this on the album? You know, these little temple bells. Let's put that on Sucking My Love. Probably getting really excited about it. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, roto-toms, we'll add that at the beginning of Helpless. So it, it wasn't doing a lot of thought in that. It just seemed like good fun. Uh, I suppose it was it was good fun. We were stopping on site. He had this little sort of chalet thing up the road, and uh, we'd walk up there at, in the dead of night. You know, we'd, it's in the countryside, and then sleep there, and then get back in the studio next morning. And you, you stopped short of uh, you know Judas Priest's uh, cutlery drawer on metal. <laughs> we didn't do that. <laughs> no. Did it fit? Because you only had a week, didn't you, to do it? Did it yeah. feel rushed? Did it, did you uh, feel it felt good for us because, because we'd, we'd only ever done the single, and that was done in a day. So to have seven days uh, felt quite a luxury, but I still think we probably had to go like the clappers to get it all done and mixed in a week. Because, I mean, we could, have, we could have said we need more time, you know, but we, perhaps we, we didn't even think of that. We just sort of, we've got to do it in seven days. Maybe that was drummed into us. You've only got a week, so don't hang about, <laughs> you know. Yeah, well, Lord knows how much more of your rights you'd have had to have given away if you'd overrun, eh? Exactly. You know, um, in perpetuity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just fascinated, Brian, in terms of looking back now on it, and and the the tracks is there is there a track or a part of a track now that you look back on and are immensely proud about i still like the solo in am i evil i, I i'm glad i got that one together finally that i was still working on it right up until we recorded it and uh, the engineer helped me change one section where i was i'd got the tapping bit and he helped me find the chords to go underneath it and that was in the studio you know so i felt oh i've been working on this for like a year and i finally finished it and i thought it sounded great and it was also lovely to hear stereo guitars because we were a one guitar band uh, even though sean played a little bit of he'd play the intro to am i evil and uh, he'd play a little bit in heat of the night and play it loud but uh, really it's a one guitar band and and then to hear stereo guitars in in a control room panned hard left and right was a fantastic uh, feeling for me i thought it sounded amazing well since you, since you've mentioned the you know am i evil did you kind of write that you and sean and think that's a monster no just, no no not really I, I i remember i liked the riff we all liked the riff um it just grew that one did built uh, we kept sort of adding things on the intro the fast bit the the ending you know i just suddenly getting a good idea oh i know what we could do we could go back into the riff at the end you know or we could put this on the beginning this big classical piece um i don't know i mean i think our brains you know when we were like 18 19 they must have been so fresh and uh able to like just pluck ideas out the air and run with them 
much easier than than I can now. <laughs> but we were just in tune with each other, and we were we were confident that we could try anything and and do anything. But I don't remember ever thinking, "Oh my God, am I this one's wait till people hear this?" You know. I think we we liked all the songs, of course, because they were our seven best. And by that point, we had written about 100 songs, even though people think I'm, I'm making that up or it must, be, it must be a load of rubbish because nobody writes 100 songs for their first album. <laughs> but we did. And so that's why the songs are of a quality, probably, because in the four years, that's, as I say, that's almost all we've done is write, write, write. And perfect as well. and. Um, tweak but I, I, I am i evil took on its own life when we started playing it live uh people would come backstage very impressed and go that song's amazing that's you that's your one and we almost didn't want to hear that you know because we might have liked something else and uh, but when they all told us am i evil is the one we had to kind of think oh, okay well about that am i evil then and it even got in Kerrang. The, the first issue of Kerrang, I think, listed the top 50 or maybe 100 rocked songs as compiled by, you know, the fans or the journalists or something. And Am I Evil was in that. Uh, and, and that was, you know, impressive. I think this was 81, wasn't it? Or 82, Kerrang. So to get in that list, I didn't even know we were going to be in the list. And I read down the list. And you get to about number 32 or whatever it was. And Am I Evil's in there, along with, you know, the Zeppelins and the Rushes and the, the Van Halens. So that we were very impressed with that. You must get, you, do you still get an enormous sense of, sense of satisfaction, Brian, when you play it live and you see, you know, 10,000 heads bobbing along? It, 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 it's, such a, it's such an anthem that everyone knows and everyone's so fond of. And, yeah, and, and enjoy I always... Playing it. I always think it's a great song to have in the set. Mm. Yeah, that that you know, if nothing else, that song will will kill the the audience. Uh, and if you're having a great night, you I always think by the time we get to Am I Evil, it will, you know, it will kick off. Everything we, we, you'll be running for your lives in a minute. Just you know, look out. But we don't get to play to ten thousand bobbing heads very often. But I have done, uh, and it is a good feeling. So looking back um, at the recording of Lightning to the Nations then, you know, here we are in 2020, you've got all of these years of experience, all these albums under your belt, you know, there's the relationship with Metallica, there's all of that kind of great stuff going on. What advice would you give to your 19-year-old self mm. now going into the studio? I'd probably... I'd, I'd drum it into him because I've uh, I've done production uh, and I've made a lot of you know recording since I would drum it into myself. You've got to be prepared. You know, take your equipment, take everything you've got, change the strings, make sure you've got a good tuner, um, practice, warm up. I'd do all those kind of technical things to try and make sure you're in the right place at the right time sort of thing to record and not, not turn up on your guitars. You, you, I've been there and I think, well, have you changed your strings? And you go, no, I, I, I changed them last time we did a gig or something. So like, you don't have to change your strings. So then you spend an hour changing your strings, valuable studio time ticking away, you know. So, I mean, that part of it. But, you know, in hindsight, I, I would have, um, I would have had a word, to myself about management uh, and the future, you know, but that is never going to happen, is it? There's no such thing as time travel. And uh, so I just had to learn on the job and, and you live, you know, you learn by your mistakes. Very true. Very true. So just before we kind of, we move on a little bit, obviously when you came to do Borrowed Time, Am I Evil and Lightning to the Nations both appeared on that album were both on that album were they directly lifted from lightning or did you re-record them or re-record parts of them they were re-recorded completely were they yes because obviously uh we we could well we it's not obviously but we couldn't get a deal for that 
debut album, which in hindsight is ridiculous. We just pressed up a thousand copies. I think, again, the guy who owned the studio, this Muff Murphy character uh, who had a publishing company, had a label as well. How about that? And uh, he said, why, why don't you press up a thousand copies and you can sell them yourself and you can make a bit of money and pay pay the bills, you know, because by this point we'd probably got a van and a couple of roadies and things like that. So it all it all helped keep us on the road. We sold a thousand copies and then it, they pressed up another thousand copies. So when we signed to MCI, uh, maybe eighteen months later, the the A and R man said, "Well, nobody's got that album hardly. They certainly haven't got it in America." It, it's only on vinyl. It's 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 just two thousand copies. So th- we should re-record a couple of the songs for the debut Diamond Head album on MCA Records, which is to be borrowed time because we'd already got these three songs that we'd been working on: borrowed time, heat of the night, and don't you ever leave me. And we thought, okay, well those are the main three. We'll we'll add Am I Evil and Lighting to the Nations to that re-recorded versions with this new producer chap, uh, Mike Hedges. Uh, plus we had to have him from Hell left over. And of course we had to write a single for MCA, which, which was Call Me. So that was the whole album there. But yeah, we redid them. I remember Sean not particularly wanting to redo them. He thought it was a waste of time. But I could see the logic that people hadn't got, you know, necessarily got that first album. And here's a chance to... Uh, to get it to a much, much wider audience. And it did, it sold a lot more copies, borrowed time did. I don't know how many, maybe 30,000 or something. So it did reach a, a much wider audience. And um, the, the, the production on those two redone tracks is far, far better. Yeah. We had more time and uh, it, it was a, probably a better studio and, and uh, you know, it's a proper producer. It was done at London in, uh, in, um, Camden, I think it was, or something like that. Yeah, called a place called the Playground. It was a nice studio. It's easy, isn't it, to to, to just dwell on the, those early albums, Brian? But uh-huh. um, yeah, before we move on from there and just talk about generally about the band and its journey, um, you were always—I mean, ever since I can remember—you were always described as being ahead of your time, of being groundbreaking, of being pioneers. Um, because you were doing something completely different. There wasn't anybody like you out there, um, as far as I can remember. Um, you know, I was 17 when Borrowed Time came out, and um, I just uh, you know, blew, knocked my socks off when I first heard it. But it was different. They were all different. You know, Lightning to the Nations was different. Borrowed Time was different. Rich and I were talking earlier about how much we love Canterbury, um, because cool. it, it's completely different. Is that how you saw yourselves? Did you see yourselves as kind of pioneers and groundbreakers? I don't think we did. I think we just wanted to uh, make good music, quality uh, music and we were still emulating our heroes of the 70s and I mean as it turns out the 70s is in my opinion the greatest decade for bands and music uh, there's ever been yep. and uh, so we had an immense uh, respect for all these incredible bands who'd gone before and and they'd set such a high bu- sort of watermark that we were trying to compete with like Zeppelin and Purple and all these, you know, monolith bands. So we wanted to write great songs. We weren't interested in, you know, get in, get out, take the money and run and type wham, bam, thank you, man type thing. We wanted to write the, the greatest song of all time, you know. We had ridiculous ambition, write the greatest album of all time. And, of course, you, you get to the point where you think, oh, it's not going to be the greatest album. But you try. You do try. And, and it, I think you've got to try. So yeah. I was just going to say, um, I just want to point out at this point, Steve and Richard, you did hear Brian say that the 1970s were the greatest, Absolutely. The greatest decade, didn't you? Because they accused me of never wanting to leave the 1970s, Brian. Well, it just, it's just a fact. <laughs> it's an absolute fact. You list the bands that were like making their music and their mark in the 70s and compare it to any other decade. And I think the 70s trounces it. 
Yeah, I'm with you, Brian. Absolutely, I'm with you. Does that even allow for Flotsam and Jetsam, Brian? Are we, are we including them in this or not? No. <laughs> <laughs> what have they got to do with it? <laughs> <laughs> so um, the, the songwriting partnership, you've touched on that with Sean, but how did it work in practice? Did you sit together and write this stuff? Or, or yeah. was it you provided kind of the, you went, here you are, Sean, here's a, here's, a, here's a track, you go and put some lyrics No, to it. I mean, I, I, I didn't ever do a track with Sean. It was always, uh, he's a riff. So we'd just sit. I'd, I'd probably come up with riffs, put them on cassette, and then I'd think, right, Sean's coming around in a bit. So we'd, we'd have a go, I've got this riff, and he'd say, yeah, that's good, and, and then... Uh, maybe try going there for the chorus or something. Uh, and then he'd start singing there and then, you know, hey, my baby, whatever, whatever came into his head and, and it, ideas would form and, and he'd jot down lyrics. And it, we could write a song in a night, you know, at times, a, a rough sketch of an idea and get it down on cassette and then, and then move on to the next one sometimes or, or work on it again you know, next day or next time we got back together. But it's all, um, it was all in the air. I, I didn't have, a, you know, a multi-track or anything and neither did Sean. And uh, only later on did, did Sean have a four track uh, from about 82 onwards. So we would go to his house and put down a little demo and then he would have chance to work on the lyrics and spend ages on, on lyrics and, and things like that. But in the, on the early material, the stuff that, you know, is unlikely to the nations for sure. Everything would have just been sort of thrown out in, in, in midair and you have to remember it and you have to catch, catch the moments. Now you've worked with, um, you've worked with three vocalists, Brian, um, yes. and all very distinctive voices, fine vocalists, all three. Um, and you've now found Rasmus Bomb Anderson, which was, well, hey, where did you find him? And I, and I, I gather he didn't know much about you as well. Is that correct? Yes, he, he didn't know anything about Diamond Head when he joined or when he, you know, was offered the gig. He probably just Googled us and thought, oh, okay. But, <laughs> I was just going to say, did you, did you want him to understand what Diamond Head were all about? What, what um, rooted him? Yes, once he, you know, once, once uh, he, he was up for the job, I wanted him to appreciate what was going on and what we were like and um, what we'd done and, uh, you know, respect the back catalogue. I always mm -hmm. think that's important. Uh, and you don't want fans coming to the gigs and the singers not doing the songs justice or change them and, uh, and you know, you don't want to piss the fans off. So you, you singers got to be right. But he, I found him through a friend of a friend. Uh, he lived in London and uh, I think it just maybe uh, send him a track. I think that's what we did. We sent him a, a track without vocals on and he sent it back about two days later with vocals on. And we, well, I just thought, wow, he's great. He, he made it sound easy in, you know, hold notes. Nothing was, a, was an, a struggle for him. And so I thought, right, come up then and rehearse uh, in the Midlands and uh, we'll, we'll see how it goes. And within about half an hour, I just thought, yeah, he's great. We'll do it. Yeah, be fine. He could span the generations with that voice. I mean, he'd, he'd have sounded, he wouldn't have sounded out of place in 1980, wouldn't he? He certainly sounds very relevant in 2020. It's just a True. good It's really a good great voice. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's a lot of talent. Um, um, he's a big fan. He's re really coming into his own on the coffin train, isn't he? I mean, yes. Goodness, he, he's, he, he's got a pair of lungs on him. Indeed. He's uh, had more time on the coffin train than he did on the, the uh, the Diamond Head album of 2016. And I think he was find, finding his feet. He was still unsure of what was required and what the fans would think, you know. We were sort of worried that people would think, I don't like it or it's not Diamond Head or it's this or it's that. And uh, by the, the general reaction was fantastic. So that gave Raz tons of confidence to to continue and do more and push the envelope a little more probably. So he, he was able to uh, put a lot of time and effort into um, the coffin train and uh, it, it benefited everybody, you know, thinks it's a, it's a progression. It's a move forward. His influences, I think, I mean, like Chris Cornell, aren't they in Soundgarden? Yeah. And, and so I can really hear um, echoes of, of Chris Cornell's voice in what, what yeah. 
Rasmus is singing. I mean, it, and it really, it does just sound like he's, he's taken all the straps off. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's great. Yes, it's, it's a great voice. Yeah, he's got, he's got an amazing range and, and he's, you know, it's a nice voice and um, it's got some good tone to it. It's, you know, I know a good singer when I hear one and when I heard him sing, it immediately appealed to me. It didn't sound, I, you know, it, there's a bit of Chris in there, but it didn't sound like a rip-off or it didn't sound like he was trying to sound like Chris. I think he probably grew up listening to Chris Cornell and so he took on a few maybe mannerisms or whatever it is in, in a voice uh, and ways to sing certain. Because it's got to come from somewhere, hasn't it? You know, Sean used to like Paul Rogers and... Uh, uh, Robert Plant and those sort of singers and so you know he took on a few of those inflections uh, and Raz has got his own he's a big fan of Freddie Mercury as well so um, I think it's really interesting I obviously when you you're on Spotify these days Spotify will kind of dredge up all sorts of recommendations for you based on your previous listening won't it and I, yeah. and so I, I sometimes I just let that run because it, I discover new stuff and it's Great. Yeah, I, um, I like that. Yeah, and I was listening um, ages ago, I mean, yeah, probably 2017. Um, I was, the, Spotify was just doing its thing. And this this song came on and and I thought, God, that sounds, that sounds just like Diamond Head. And it was All the Reasons You Live. Yeah. Um, and I, I wasn't looking at the phone, so I had no idea. But but he gets, Raz gets yes. the band doesn't he? He does. Oh, totally. Yeah. Well, once he, once he decided to join, he, he, he sort of did an overview and went back and listened to everything. And, uh, we had a kind of brief when we were writing that album where it, it should sound like Diamond Ed and it, you know, it seems obvious, but that by having that brief, it meant that if, if somebody come along with an idea that didn't really work or didn't sound like Diamond Ed, we were able to cut it off and not waste time on it, and also not hurt anybody's feelings, because if it makes perfect sense that we should sound like Diamond Head and not not shoot off into you know prog territory or or, or be to this to that. Uh, and so that brief served us very well, and we, we employed it on the the last album as well. But, but for, I mean, forty years apart, Brian. I mean, the, the Coffin Train will never quite be lightning. Clearly, I mean, so much has changed yeah. over the time. I mean, when I listen to the Coffin Train, it's it's just a big beef of a beast. It's it's yeah. just it's a properly heavy, and that's and that's where we are now, wasn't it? The production's better. The, yes. The the, the the drums are louder. Just everything about it is louder. Forty, and 40 years, absolutely. Yeah. Production and equipment and amplifiers and everything's yeah. changed in forty years. Yeah, metals was, come on so far. Yeah, well, I was making the point yeah. as, as, as subtle and understated as, as Duncan Scott was on Lightning. Carl Wilcox is, is the polar opposite on, yeah. on, on this album, and that's where we are now, isn't it? Everything yes. is up, up big and loud. You must be very proud of it. I am. I, I you know, to to have that album after after I've been doing it for over 40 years is is a real achievement. Because some bands, you know, they start repeating themselves and, and running out of ideas and just just you know it's, it can become a bit nostalgic and uh, this that and the other but uh it feels like it's still a bit of a progression uh but but it's also like we're trying to tap into that classic diamond head style of, of the early works like the prince and and helpless and am i evil and and we you know it's still still trying to write Great rock songs, big epic rock songs. Uh, that's that's what I still like, and I, that's what I still try to do. Uh, so yeah. Yeah, I mean, some of the some of the riffs on there, you know, like the, I I love the riff, the main riff on the messenger. And me, um, it's, it's just yeah. it's proper proper stuff. So uh, as you as we kind of said, the 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 Enter Sad Men podcast is about. Um, trying to find um, the the sort of the the one to one hundred or one to two fifty um, all time great albums. And um, when we started the podcast, we decided that the first two episodes we were going to do were going to be first of all the album that we bought with our own money, yeah, um, from our paper rounds or in my case stealing cigarettes from my parents and selling them, 
um, and uh, then our favourite albums of all time. So, um, if you're happy, then let, why don't we start there? So, what was the what, what was the first album that you bought with your own money? Do you remember? Yeah, it was Led Zeppelin Two, which is a brilliant album, and it was a good start. Uh, I, I, I must have played that album hundreds of times. Still love it, uh, and and Zeppelin are still my favourite band. So I've, I've, I'm glad I started with a good one, really. Well, you certainly did. What's your favourite track off that one? Um, I like Heartbreaker. I think it's a, an amazing riff. Uh, but it's loads of great tracks on that, on that album. What is and what should never be. And whole lot of love and Lemon Song. Yeah, Lemon Song. Everyone remembers the Lemon Song. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, they're all great. I, I like all the Zeppelin albums. Do you remember which shop you bought it from? Uh, it might have been Mark and Moody in, in Stourbridge, Stourbridge High Street. I don't remember, but that was our local store. And I think it was there, if anything. There's one in Dudley called I don't know, Graduate Records, but I've got a feeling I bought it in Stourbridge. <laughs> and, okay, so um, I, I feel like we're going to discover a... A mini theme here because I'm going to ask you what your favourite album is of all time. Yeah, I think I know the answer. So I've got a list of ten favourite albums of all time, it's beginning with Zeppelin, Physical Graffiti. I think a lot of people know that I like Zeppelin by now. <laughs> and uh, my favourite song of all time is Cashmere, which is on Physical Graffiti. So that's that's an incredible album to me, with with loads of brilliant songs, and it's very varied. It's amazing how many uh, different styles Zeppelin were able to touch upon on their career. And uh, bands don't seem to do that now. They're a lot more stylized, a little bit, you know, this is their style and they stick to it. They don't do a, an acoustic, you know, song or a reggae song or, you know, a samba or something. So yeah. it, it, it's strange how, how it was okay to do that in the 70s, but not anymore and it's sort of a shame in a way i mean the great thing about zeppelin is you never quite know what you're going to get do you no put it on no um, so um do, i mean do you think i've uh, just just to uh, kind of deviate very briefly do you think am i evil was was kind of your early your 19 year old cashmere i don't know i never thought of it like that i've probably tried to write cashmere um i think if anything it was it was black sabbath uh because i a massive fan of Black Sabbath, and I think I was probably trying to outdo uh, Symptom of the Universe because that was my favorite Black Sabbath riff. So I wanted to come up with something as heavy as that, if not heavier. And I came up with the riff to Am I Evil? And so that song was always a bit like our Sabbathy song because I always thought the intro. Uh, not the intro, but the main riff was, a, a, you know, inspired by Symptom of the Universe. And the fast section was inspired by um, Children of the Grave. So it was very much our Black Sabbath, you know, homage. Well, but we, we did it well. We didn't just, you know, do it obvious. And uh, No, I was going to say, it's a hell of a tribute. Yeah. Hell of a tribute. Okay, so we got um, Zeppelin 2 and Physical Graffiti. What, what else is on the list? Number two is Dark Side of the Moon, which is the most perfect album I feel uh, from start to finish the flow you know each track linked and the quality of the the writing the lyrics and the performances just a, a gorgeous mood I could listen to that album for the rest of my life I've been listening to it probably since 73 74 and I, I never get tired of it my, um, my, my mother bought that when she qualified as a, a teacher um, it was she decided she was going to go out and buy the number one album at that time when she qualified. Okay. And that was it. So I grew up with Dark Side of the Moon. And I think I'm right in saying you and I um, agree on the, on the, on the, the, the our favourite track on that album as well. Us and Them, isn't it? Us and Them. Yeah. Yeah, magic. Yeah. Absolute magic. It's about seven and a half minutes long, isn't it? But uh, it, it, uh, gorgeous. I, I learned to play all those songs on the guitar. And, and I was amazed how simple they were they because they don't sound simple but they're all just simple chords you know e minor a minor c g and 
some clever writing went into that. But also, it's a simple writing, you know, not clever to be clever, but uh, it just works. It's it's an amazing piece of art for me, that, that album is. Was, was Gilmore one of those guitarists you, you kind of, you looked up to, Brian, when you were learning it? it absolutely. The solo in time and, and uh, money are both brilliant. But I probably wanted to be more flash than okay. Gilmore, at, you know, when I was a young man, trying to impress. Yeah. So I'd, I'd be, I'd be favouring Michael Schenker and Richie mm-hmm. Blackmore and Eddie Van Halen because they're much more, you know, showy and look at me. Whereas Gilmore's understated, isn't he? He, he, he don't play any, any notes that, that are unnecessary. And, and I, I, you know, the, more, the older I get, the more and more I appreciate people like that, like Eric Clapton and Mark Knopfler. But uh, when I was 18, 19, I probably still thought I could be the fastest gun in the West. <laughs> do you want me to do number three? Yeah, let's do yeah. number three. I'm going with The Nightfly by Donald Fagan, which is an amazing album. Every track for me, a beautifully produced album. It's just sort of, you know, with, with a lot of some of these choices, I like albums that, that I can relax to as, as much as, you know, rock out to. Or, or, you know, this is not an album that influenced me in any way, uh, but it's the sort of album I could listen to to chill or relax. And it will, I can just fall into the, the quality of the, the production and the playing and the, the grooves. And uh, I, I've listened to this album hundreds of times uh, and i always recommend it when i meet somebody who hasn't heard the night fly i'm quite shocked at the, and i have to i talk them to death until they go and listen to it and if they don't like it i'm i'm, I'm bewildered i'm lost how can you not like it <laughs> you know it's ridiculous <laughs> Oh, it's a, it's a it's a brilliant album it was his debut album as well wasn't it um, debut solo yeah, debut solo album. Yeah. Yes. Funnily enough, I'm not so keen on the other two, uh, Karma Kiriad and, and uh, Underwater Condos, but this one is just magnificent. Okay, note to self, go and check that out again, because it's been ages since I've heard The Night Fly. Beautiful. Number four, Brian. Uh, I've got The Joshua Tree. Oh, you too. Okay. You too. I saw you two in 83, and I was blown away uh, on the war tour. And I've been a fan ever since. And when this album came out in 87, I, I just thought it was, you know, it's easily their best album up to that point. And I liked every track. I loved the production. You know, they had With or Without You as a hit. Then they had um, Where the Streets of No Name. And then um, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I went to see them three times on the Joshua Tree tour. And uh, fantastic. One of the best live bands I've ever seen. Uh, I, I haven't seen them since then uh, other than you know I've, I've, I've watched videos and I've been to the pictures when they do one of them concert things and put it on at the pictures you know I've been to that but uh, yeah it's a great album he's That's a great that. singer he's one of my favourite singers as well right you, you ventured twice into the 80s now Brian so uh, ah. I'm expecting you to go back some point soon what, what's number five there's, there's more 80s coming <laughs> uh, so next is Ziggy Stardust okay which is a, another brilliant album every track uh, I've been I've had this uh, I bet I've had this album since you know maybe maybe 40 years and, and I, I never get tired of it I've listened to it over and over again I love albums where you can put them on and there isn't a track on there that annoys you or you just want to skip that one and it's, it, it all seems to flow and there's a collection feel about it. Uh, like they were written, you know, for, for a purpose. I love that, you know, the order and it's just things about this album that I just think uh, Bowie got it right, you know, got it really right. It's my favourite Bowie album and uh, one of my favourite uh, albums of all time. Full stop, you know. Did you like Bowie in general? Was he, was he your kind of frontman? As a songwriter, I suppose. I, I probably just, uh, like a lot of people, noticed him when he did um, Space Oddity. Mm. And then, I, 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 
you know, most of the things he he did after that, I, I would like, you know, I would like, he'd come on top of the pops and he'd do, you know, John, I'm only dancing or Starman or whatever it was. And I'd always like it. And I thought it was always pretty rock and roll with McBronson and, you know, yeah. and then when he changed, I liked it as well. When he, when he did uh, Young Americans and then, and then even Let's Dance and then on into I'm afraid. Uh, I'm afraid of Americans, and uh, just an incredible talent. Yeah, incredible. He managed to reinvent himself, didn't he? he incredible, he relevant for every period that he was. I don't know how he even did that. You know, very few artists reinvent themselves to that degree. The balls that takes to throw away a successful idea and formula and start again, and and all the fans might go, "No, we don't like." It. I, I, I don't know where you get the balls for that. Because I mean, he was so bold, wasn't he, in terms of like the choices of the musicians that he surrounded yeah. himself with. Yeah. Like, on, like on Let's Dance, yeah. it was um, uh, Niall Rogers, wasn't it? Yeah. Produced it. And then he's got Stevie Ray Vaughan on lead guitar. Yes, that's right. And yeah. it's just immense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he, he would just dis- decide to work with some artist and... And that'd be the end of it, wouldn't it? And uh, it didn't matter what field I came from. He wasn't trying to. Uh, he wasn't trying to please the fans. Almost was he was trying to please himself without going too weird. I mean, there's, there's some tracks that are too weird for me uh, on some of his albums. Uh, but Ziggy's a rock album, and so I think that's why it really, really appeals to me. It's rock. It's quite simple: guitars, bass, drums, uh, piano. So. It just, it's got a lasting uh, impression on me. Next album. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Machine Head, Deep Purple, classic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Richard Blackmore is one of the main reasons I learned, I, I learned to play the guitar and, and actually studied and, and took it seriously. But once I heard Highway Star, the solo in Highway Star, I just thought, okay, I'm going to have to practice. I, you know, that's, that's amazing. Uh, I, you know, if, it's okay playing Smoke on the Water with one finger, you know, on one string. But if you're going to play something like that, then you better practice. Yeah. Uh, and so it, it, Blackmore is one of the main influences on my career and, and my style and uh, wh- why I took it up seriously. So, and I think that's a brilliant album. E- again, every track. On, on Machine Head for me, um, Pictures of Home, you know, not everybody knows that track, but whenever it comes on, I always think, wow. It's, Love it. It's the a, bass solo as well, famous for the bass It's a brilliant solo. track, it's yeah. Famous. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's more famous tracks on that album, like, like you know, Highway Star and uh, uh, Lazy and mm. Space Trucking and things. Yeah. But Pictures of Home is magnificent. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, um, to seven. Uh, seven is uh, moving pictures. Wow! So you made, you've made Richard Knight. Is yeah. it Richard who likes Rush? Yeah, he's a huge Rush fan. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. I've seen them about maybe four times. That's their best album for me. I think it was all, you know, growing to that point because I bought um, a farewell to Kings, and and then I just thought that moving pictures was like wow. The, you know, the minute it starts with uh, Tom Sawyer, it's just brilliant. What a track. And Red Barchetta. Every track again, really. I there's nothing on there I don't like. I, yeah, I lost them as they went into, um, you know, later albums, Power Windows and things like that, Vapor Trials. I didn't really follow them in the end. There was a golden period for me. And, uh, yeah, I really liked... Uh, you know, permanent waves is great, hemispheres is great, but uh, I, I did lose them a little bit. Um, no, I'm, I'm with you, Brian. Is there? I mean, I, I've loved all everything they've done, but it, it, that that is their best. And, yeah, uh, it, it, that's my number one. That, yeah, that's it's a, amazing. That's my physical graffiti, and, uh, and what a great sound as well. It's so clean and tidy, isn't it? They're so tight. Yeah, I well, yeah, I, I'm sorry, don't, don't get me going on rush. I think okay. <laughs> the combination of all of their their, their playing, which is yeah, can be you know, complex, simple. We often talk about the albums that we review, 
when we're doing this stuff. And it, and it's you know it's the usual the old adage around actually it's the spa it's the spaces as much as the the music that that really makes a fantastic album, and yeah. um, and I mean that, that that's moving pictures for me. Yeah, yeah. The three guys, you know, what a great you know combination of players. Uh, a very rare thing for and for them to last so long as a three piece, and uh, it's you know almost unique, very rare. And and you know ultimate respect. Next album, Asia, um, Steely Dan, again a gorgeous album. Uh, every track, pretty much. Uh, Peg, <laughs> Deacon Blues, Asia, even Home at Last. I think the groove on Home at Last, Bernard Purdy, awesome. That's probably their biggest selling album, Asia. I'd have thought because it had more hits on it. But yeah. I, I've been a fan since, you know, the mid to late 70s. It's a sort of band, because I'm a rocker and, I, you know, everybody everybody I mix with goes on about, you know, Motorhead and Slayer and Iron Maiden and all that. I'm probably not supposed to like Steely Down. I think it's like a guilty pleasure. And I've always liked Steely Down. I think it's, it's like some of the most crafted music on the planet. Uh, and I can just get off on how difficult it must have been to, to make and write the lyrics are outrageous, but um, it, it's a pleasure, you know, any time of day. Uh, it doesn't have to be. No, it doesn't. And, and um, well-known musicologist once said to me, once described Mozart as the Eddie Van Halen of his day. So I think, <laughs> I think it's entirely fine to like Steely Dan. Frankly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Why not? Why shouldn't I? Why can't I have a bit of, bit of, you know, bit of relaxation? Right. How many have we got left? Is it a couple left now? Uh, yeah, I think there's uh, two. I've got Let There Be Rock, ACDC, my favourite ACDC yeah. album. I love ACDC and first saw them in 77. Incredible. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping, Brian, that, that, that you're, you and I are going to agree again on this. What is your favourite track off Let There Be Rock? Yeah, I'm going to go... Hell ain't a bad place to be. No, oh, okay. <laughs> no, oh, yeah, yeah. we're overdose fans. Yeah, overdose. Yeah. yeah, I like it. They never play that, do they? They never no. do that. No. no, but it's also got Problem Child on it, and Go Down is brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Now I like them all really. It, well, it's well. just so raw and mm. exciting. Uh, there was nothing like them. Was uh, when they first appeared. It, it felt almost like, you know, a bar band had come over from Australia and got this crazy guitarist. And it didn't feel like they were going to last and, and go on for 40 years and make, you know, 20 albums. It just felt like grab the excitement now while they're here. Just some, the, the sweat of it, you know, there was just, it was so raw and new and exciting. Uh, the riffs, the guitar sound, the simple drums and bass, the tongue-in-cheek lyrics. What a band. I think the secret to ACDC is that back line. I, I go with Malcolm's, you know, Iron Fist from telling people don't play, you know, don't do any drum fills, don't do any bass. Stay, you know, stay in position. Let Angus be the star. There's several things that I think they got absolutely right. But yeah, it's, it's so simple. You notice, well, you know, when like Angus does a, a walkabout or something and the rest of the band, I was watching one the other day and it, it was about 15 minutes long and Angus is doing the, the walkabout. And the other guys on stage, they're playing Let There Be Rock and they're just playing exactly the same, like, bam, bam. And nobody does anything. There's no fills. The bass player doesn't go up an octave because he's bored. You know, <laughs> uh, Malcolm doesn't flinch. And that requires a lot of discipline. But they know it works. It's like once they settle on the groove, that's all that matters. Just stick with that. And they won't move from that until it's the cue, you know, like Angus comes to a certain point or looks at them or something, and then it's time to go into the next bit. But they would just do that all night. And that, that takes a lot of discipline. Mm, so. yeah, it does. Great album, great album. One of the, again, one of the best bands I've ever seen. Top three. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah it's always a good show. It's always yeah. a good show, certainly. Yeah. Um, so bring out the rear. Well, not bring out the rear, but in 10th. In number 10, Woodface by Crowded House. Okay. I love Crowded House. I've got all their albums and I think his voice is amazing and he's a fantastic songwriter. And uh, there's some gorgeous tracks um, scattered amongst their their albums. Um, I, I, he's an awesome writer. I never got to see them. I went to see Neil Finn when he was solo, but it was a bit disappointing because he didn't play any Crowded House. <laughs> <laughs> he did one of them jobbies. He's playing a new album and he's... But and I think he might have done one or two for an encore. But, uh, <laughs> disappointing. But anyway, he, he's he's great. He's in Fleetwood Mac now, isn't he, Neil? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But um, yeah, I love Crowded House. And I've played that album a hundred times. I love it. Those songs are timeless, aren't they? Absolutely timeless. On yeah. That. It's kind of Beatlesy, isn't it? Bit Beatlesy, but that's sort of a good thing because I love Beatles as well. So. Well, that's a fascinating insight. Um, into kind of what's what's moved and inspired you, Brian. Um, you've got one more job to do for us, which is to give us the albums that we need to review next week. But before we do that, yeah. um, I can't possibly let you go without talking about that Sonosphere gig. Okay. And the link with Metallica, um, who, yeah, uh, yeah, I think you know, we, we, we know um, how important Metallica have been to you personally and to the band. But that... I wanted to talk about that moment because for two reasons. One, um, that must have been a hell of a night. And two, it, it brings me to a question I've always wanted to know the answer to, which is those six notes that lead into the main riff yeah. of Am I Evil? The harmonics. The harmonics, yeah. yeah. Have, you, have you ever worried that you might screw them up? Yeah. And, and did you worry about it that night? I don't remember worrying about it that night. I have played them in the wrong order. Have you? Yeah. <laughs> Which is weird. Uh, I do have to really concentrate uh, when I'm doing, you know, that exposed, the biddly, biddly, biddly bit yeah. uh, as well. But yeah, usually I get it right. I like to practice. I practice at home and, I'm, you know, I will go through the set at home, you know, if, we, if we've got gigs coming up. I'll try and go through it, you know, maybe 10 times or something. Uh, but no, I don't normally, you know, screw that bit up. Uh, yeah. And I don't remember thinking, oh, dear, there's a lot of people watching, you know, and it's being filmed. <laughs> so I better get it right. Well, I'll probably one... just try and relax because uh, it does come automatic. Yes, it's yeah. muscle memory in the end, isn't yeah. it? But, um, but that was one night when you played to a few more than 10,000 people. Yeah, that was um, probably like more like 50, 60, wasn't it? Yeah. Because it's been filmed and all sorts, isn't it? And it's still around on YouTube. So you, you really don't want to make a mistake. No. And, um, <laughs> and, and, and you know, I know, I know you're a modest man and, and you know, you, you, you probably kind of shake your head at this. But you know, I think we do need also to... to um, acknowledge the fact that Lars did that night credit you effectively with the birth of Thrash. Yeah, um, I, I don't quite swallow that. Uh, I think there's other bands in the mix, like you know Judas Priest and and Motorhead and Iron Maiden. So uh, you know, I think Diamond Head added to the mix, and I th we were an important band to Metallica. But I'm not going to take all the credit because obviously, you know, with a song like, uh, uh, as I say, the fast part of, of To Heaven, um, Am I Evil, for example, I got that from Children of the Grave, but it, I speeded it up. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, Judas Priest had things like Exciter and, uh, um, you know, The Sinner. And, you know, there's various songs that are quite fast and, and exciting and, and we would have, copped all that and and tried to move it in uh, you know motorhead when they come out with with the track motorhead and then overkill and and uh bomber and uh that was uh, you know wow you know double kick drums and there was a there was a tempo there that we hadn't explored you know so sounds like helpless would have nodded to, to, to things like uh, motorhead uh and priest so you know, I th it's got to come from somewhere. But I, I think with Metallica, they always say that uh, what they got from Diamond did was the epic feel, the, the long songs, the, you know, not not just, you know, Motorhead didn't write long songs, did they? They had the attitude and the, the, 
the agro and the leathers and all that. But Diamond were trying to do classic kind of big songs. And, I th- and, and that's what Metallica ended up doing. Didn't they? Some of their songs are really long, eight, nine minutes even. Uh, and uh, that, you know, the big Diamond Head songs is what inspired Metallica to do big, long songs. So, well, that, it, it's all important somehow. Yeah, it is. And uh, but whatever small part you might have played, thank you, because because um, thank think you. We all enjoy a bit of Metallica as well. Absolutely. So, okay, so that brings us nicely round to the three albums that you're the homework that you're going to set for us. Yeah. The three albums that will form the next episode of the Enter Sad Men podcast. What okay. are they? What right. Are they? Well, number one is obviously physical graffiti. Yeah, no, no great chore doing that one. No, it's awesome. Uh, Let There Be Rock. Excellent. And <laughs> ACDC fan. And then Sad Rings of Destiny, which is that, a brilliant album. That Guys, that sounds to me like a really good week. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. I'm happy. Yeah. 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 Perfect. Yeah. Um, Brian, you've been really generous with your time. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. Well, I'm in lockdown and I've got time. If I'd be on the road, I might be struggling, you know, talking in a, onto a mobile while we're in the van doing 90 mile an hour. <laughs> that, that's when it becomes a bit tricky. But while I'm, I'm in lockdown, what else am I going to do? Talk well, to you about. Shame we ain't all got a pint, though. We could, we could have know, a few yeah, and we're in the pub. Well, let me, <laughs> Brian, let me tell you, we haven't got through half of what we wanted to get through with you. So Never mind. Um, after lockdown, um, if you're up for it, we'd love to come up to the Midlands and have a pint with you. All right. Yeah. Definitely. With um, some good pubs. Yeah, well, <laughs> we'd expect it there to be. So, um, yeah, we'd love to do that. Again, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. No problem. Thanks for getting in touch. Um, Thanks for your time, Brian. Okay, nice to sort of meet you all. And you. We'll we'll see you at at the next show you do in the UK. Yes. Good call. Stay safe. Uh, You too. So there you are. That was the conversation with Brian. What we have to do now, Steve, Richard and I, is go away and it's not going to be a hard job. It's It's not going to be an unpleasant task. But we now have to spend the next week listening to Physical Graffiti, Let There Be Rock and Sad Wings of Destiny. And you can find out what we thought of those three albums in the next edition of the Enter Sad Men podcast. Until then, stay well, stay safe. I look forward to seeing you soon. (laughs) 